Hello, and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy, USAP. In October of 2023, I spoke to Theda Scotchpal, Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. Professor Scotchpal's research focuses on U.S. politics, social policy, and civic engagement in American democracy, including changes since the 1960s. The author of 12 books, 12 edited collections, and more than seven dozen articles, Professor Scotchpal is recognized as one of the most cited and widely influential scholars in the modern social sciences. In 2009, she co-founded and currently directs Scholars Strategy Network, which encourages nonpartisan public engagement by university-based scholars. In our conversation, we spoke about her new book with Lainey Newman, Rust Belt Union Blues, Why Working Class Voters Are Turning Away from the Democratic Party. Using Western Pennsylvania as a case study, their book examines the decline of labor unions and the shift of working class voters away from the traditional home in the Democratic Party. We also discussed the appeal of Donald Trump to blue-collar voters and how unions might regain their previous role in American community life. So, just to begin, could you give us a quick overview of your new book, Rust Belt Union Blues, and its main arguments and findings? Rust Belt Union Blues is a book that I did with uh, an undergraduate who grew up in Western Pennsylvania that um, did a senior thesis at Harvard that uh, was based on interviews with retired steel workers in that uh, storied region of the United States where the steel industry and the steel workers union were, uh, you know, king and queen in the 1950s, 60s into the 1970s. I've spent a lifetime thinking about various kinds of voluntary organizations and civic groups, donor organizations, all kinds of organizations. I I study uh, politics in the United States and other countries, and I usually look at the organizational basis of politics, not just uh, uh, a kind of loose collection of individuals and their attitudes and outlooks, because I think organizations uh, really magnify the voice and the identity of groups that are organized and are interconnected. And so um, I was delighted to be able to work with Lainey Newman, the uh, the primary author of this book, on her senior thesis, because I had previously studied other kinds of citizens associations, not so much unions, but she was uh, very interested because of her family and regional background in, in, in union decline and what that meant, how it happened and what it meant for society and politics in the Rust Belt of the United States, of which Western Pennsylvania was has been the core. So um, after her senior thesis was finished, she delayed going to law school for a year, and we worked on a whole series of other uh, aspects of the book, because the book looks at organizations, looks at uh, the Steelworkers Union, um, makes comparisons to some other unions, particularly the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and asks how they were rooted in local communities in Western Pennsylvania, and how those linkages affected the the kind of worldviews, the values, and the political 
outlooks and actions of unionized members, their neighbors, and their family members. Um, it's a, a very grounded way to come at the question of why organizations matter in politics. And our central finding and argument is that studying union decline by looking at numbers of members falling away, loss of dues, the inability of um, an international union in the United States, for example, United States and Canada to lobby government. All of that is important. All of that's relevant. It's very closely tied to changes in the world economy and the industrial structure. But uh, if you want to understand the political choices that unionized workers make, even those who remain in unions as they dwindle, which is what we looked at for steelworkers in Pennsylvania, why are they switching to the Republican Party? Why are they switching to supporting someone like Donald Trump when once it was taken for granted that Democrats were, quote, with us, with the unions, and, and union members and those around them automatically voted, almost automatically voted for Democrats. That was our puzzle. And we end up arguing that a lot has to do with the changing kind of networks that workers are involved in, not just at work, but in their neighborhoods, their families, um, their, the associations, churches, and other associations that unions are linked to. And that unions were once a hub of those kinds of inter-organizational networks in Western Pennsylvania, but they no longer are. And then instead, things like gun clubs and mega churches uh, have taken their place. So you start the book with this discussion of how this collaboration between yourself and Lainey Newman began. Could you tell us a little bit about your different backgrounds and how these experiences influence the story that you tell in the book? Well, for Lainey, I think it was central because her family, uh, different branches of it, had been involved with unions uh, directly uh, for quite a long time. And she grew up in Pittsburgh, so she actually could see on the ground the um, changing community patterns in that whole area, both in Pittsburgh proper and in in the surrounding medium-sized uh, cities and towns that were once mill towns uh, where giant um steel mills and uh, the unions were were present. You know, I also grew up in the Rust Belt. I grew up in Wyandotte, Michigan, which is south of Detroit. And at the time I was growing up, about half my large high school class were headed directly into the factories as their fathers usually before them had had been. And they were making good money um, in unionized plants. And then I watched that collapse uh, my hometown, Wyandotte, is now much more of a medical center, which is true on a much bigger scale for something like Pittsburgh, which is a high-tech and, and, and medical center. And many of the outlying um, areas that had strong working-class blue-collar communities are, are wastelands in many ways, uh, like the Braddock, uh, Pennsylvania picture that's on the front of the book. Um, so uh, we both came from a background where unions were a kind of taken for granted and major presence. My father was a high school teacher and he wasn't unionized, but I can remember Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers being regularly interviewed on all the public issues of the day. I can remember huge strikes happening. Um, and uh, so my experience was more distant, but had some resonances with Laney, uh, who grew up decades later. Um, 
we also, she also did her senior thesis as the pandemic hit the universities. And, you know, I, I advise a number of senior theses each year. And of course, it was devastating for Harvard undergraduates to have to leave within a couple of days and go home and live with their parents, usually. Uh, in Laney's case, because her senior thesis was, was about her home region, she was able to turn lemons into lemonade to some degree. She could drive around and look at things. As the pandemic began to lift, she could talk to people. She could do Zoom interviews. And she connected with quite a few older uh, retirees who could talk about what it used to be like. And also she observed the still, still unionized plants by doing things like, for example, driving through the um, the parking lots and looking at the bumper stickers on the cars and then going and asking the older retirees, what were the cars like back when you were young? So she could be very creative in getting a kind of... Um, the kind of thing you just do not get in national surveys that ask people, are you a member of a union? They don't even ask you which union. Uh, and then they ask you about your current voting and attitudes. And that that's very thin. And she was able to get much more of a overtime and kind of ground level human perspective from her interviews. When she won the top prizes at Harvard College for a senior thesis outside of economics, economics has its own prizes. Um, we uh, realized that this could be publishable, um, but it, we could enrich it. And, you know, I brought some of the kind of organizational data I have on things like the Tea Party, some of the interviewing I've done over the years, including in Western Pennsylvania, and we found new materials. We found old newsletters we could code. We, over time, we found whatever data was available that broke down individual unions that people were members of. And for example, Laney discovered in one of the labor libraries a, a 1955 survey that the steelworkers had done of their members and asked them all kinds of rich questions, much richer than surveys do now about their community involvements and what they thought of various aspects of union activity. And so we just could bring a lot more um, to the, the book than was there uh, even in an extraordinarily powerful senior thesis that had to be completed in one year. Um, and Columbia University Press, the editor understood the value of this and it was wonderful working with the press and including persuading them to include those color pictures of the ribbon badges that are in my huge collection from fraternal groups and unions in, in the Rust Belt areas. So in the book, you focus on Western Pennsylvania. Can you talk a bit about what makes Western Pennsylvania a particularly rich source of evidence for studying the evolution of the role of unions in the Rust Belt as a whole? Well, you know, you could, of course, have looked at my home state, Michigan, where the auto workers reign supreme. But if you're going to go to uh, a, another industrial union that was just a giant in the mid 20th century in the United States, the steelworkers is, is it. And as we discovered when we found the booklet with the pictures of all the union halls. I mean, they were dense on the ground in Western Pennsylvania because the steel industry, the big steel mills were all around um, the region, around uh, from Erie County down to Allegheny and south of that and, 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 and west in about a 17 county area. It was uh, 
it's also an area that's closely connected to to eastern Ohio and to northern West Virginia. That in fact, that entire triangle was right at the core of of, of industrial America in the mid twentieth century, or in, in West Virginia's case, even earlier. Uh, so it's a good region. It's not the only region, but it's uh, the dynamics there are likely to be very similar to other areas. And since the research we were doing meant digging in and getting specific, while still generalizing, I mean, we're not just looking at one community. We're looking across a whole series of communities, but and comparing a couple of major unions operating in the area, uh, we still wanted to dig in. And for that, you got to make some choices. And I don't think there could be a better choice than the area that Laney happened to to call home. So uh, we made the best of it. Um, we use some evidence from other blue collar industrial communities around the country, but I think it would be fair to say the South and the West would have some different twists. So in what ways does your conceptualization of the 20th century union man differ from what's in the common imagination amongst most Americans today? And how would you say this role is tied up in broader concepts of social and community institutions and organizations? Well, we think of the union man, and they weren't all men, but overwhelmingly white men. And uh, that's important in a way because so much of current scholarship attributes changes in American politics today to race and gender. And, um, you know, since the racial and gender attitudes and involvements of the mainly white men in the steel industry have changed a great deal over many decades, uh, we probably can't assume that they were more racist or sexist in their assumptions about other people back then than they are now. And so in a way that holds that constant a little bit or even says, despite some liberalizing views uh, in this uh, blue collar white male population, uh, they've still shifted uh, in the the opposite direction you might expect in in terms of party politics. But, you know, uh, a lot of work on union members really just asks, are you a member of a union or not? Maybe asks a few questions about your attitudes, takes it for granted that unions are mainly workplace bargaining entities. And a lot of really wonderful research has been done that shows that it makes a difference both for the union members, their families, and other people in the region. If unions are strong in terms of membership, dues collections, their ability to bargain for better wages and benefits, all of that is very important. And all of that has indeed declined and collapsed uh, in, um, in in industries like the steel industry. But something more was going on, we felt. The interviews put us on to that pretty quickly. Uh, We saw that people were thinking of the union as a solidarity with others. So their ties beyond work, not just in the workplace, mattered a lot. And um, those needed to be explored. What neighborhoods, what uh, churches, what um, recreational activities, there was often an assumption that uh, a union man should provide for his family. And indeed, unionized uh, blue collar workers in mid 20th century America were the most likely Americans to have a stay at home mother and wife who was, of course, working hard, doing things in the family and doing things in the community. Uh, so uh, we looked at 
the ladies auxiliaries and the and the family activities that unions uh, sponsored, we noticed a sense of history in the kind of earlier generations of of union members that they were acutely aware that the union made a huge difference in life because they had heard about or even experienced when they were young what it was like to have a non-unionized industry where the employers could call all the shots. And the political part of our analysis was really just understanding that Democrats were not so much an abstraction or support for Democratic candidates was not so much a matter of following what the union bosses in Washington or New York or Pittsburgh said. It was more a matter of of the sense that the Democrats were there with them, that they had a local presence, that everybody around them was taking for granted that if it came down to a choice between Democrats and Republicans, the Democrats were on our side and the Republicans probably weren't. So um, that way of thinking about um, membership as a series as the intersection of relationships that go beyond just one organizational setting union works in the workplace in this case and relationships that have to do with who we defining an identity and a sense of who we are in time that's what we bring to it and we believe that others have been doing some of this kind of research some of the recent research on gun club membership gets into the whole question of the sense of citizen male protector that gun clubs nurture through their training activities and their social activities, not just are they paying dues to the National Rifle Association, which is using them to lobby Congress and and donate to presidential candidates. So we're just adding, we're not trying to subtract from previous research on how organizations matter in politics. We're trying to enrich the specifics and 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 give a sense of the new kinds of research methods that have, or in some ways, they're very old kinds of research methods that have to be added to the more statistical, um, thin data analysis that predominates uh, in this kind of research. So it seems that you're describing unions as, I guess, sort of solidarity engines. How does this change the way that we might interpret the history of unions and how they've evolved from their beginnings to the 21st century? You know, one of the things we found the most intriguing but could only take so far in the book was the comparison of the uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers with the Steelworkers. Now, if you go back to when I was a, a graduate student decades ago, um, to the degree that uh, the political scientists and sociologists paid any attention to unions at all, we heard that uh, 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 trade unions like the electrical workers built around a particular craft, a uh, particular trade skill. That uh, they were conservative because they were uh, they excluded uh, African Americans in particular. They tended to be kinship based uh, and uh, took a kind of narrow view of uh, economic bargaining uh, uh, versus the great industrial unions, which everybody took for granted back then, were the more liberal or progressive unions because of their vast scale because. They did as much as any unions did, which is not enough, but as much as any did to try to build relations across ethnic ethnic groups between Catholics and Protestants and between blacks and whites and even the occasional woman. So that uh, got turned on its head as we began to look at what had happened uh, during a period of economic uh, upheaval and decline of key industries in the Rust Belt 
we saw that the steel workers, because they were so rooted in local communities, closely tied to particular plants, couldn't maintain as much of a sense of us versus them or who we are as those local roots withered. Literally, local communities, after a period of staunch resistance to the decline of the steelworkers' steel industry, were uprooted. And remaining unionized workers and unionized plants, the, the, the workers often drive in from long distances rather than living right close to the plant. And so that changed a lot of the identity formation and the social relationships that had given those unions um, an oomph, an extra oomph in their power, their economic and political power. And I'm not sure that the national leaders were always aware of that. I mean, they sort of were, but when they had to make hard choices about how to spend dwindling dues revenues, they often maintained this the lobbying staffs rather than the recreational activities that seemed like a sideline. And in any event, the local communities weren't there, so they didn't have a lot of choices. But the IBEW, an electrical, uh, the skills-based electrical uh, union, um, maintained, uh, always had to maintain a, a less locally rooted way of connecting members and speaking to their personal and family lives because electrical workers travel from place to place to work on projects. They don't work in one place forever. So they form what I would call more ramified networks and the union itself used its newsletter to maintain a more um, social identity without it depending as much on geographical location. So we came to hypothesize that that might be why you saw less bleeding away from the Democrats and more, more uh, openness to hearing messages from uh, the union as a whole in the current period. Now, we could only test that hypothesis slightly because where's the data? You know, nobody out there is gathering evidence that asks people, which union do you belong to, let alone over time? So we squeezed out a couple of empirical studies where that data was available. And we looked at the newsletters over time and saw some pretty clear differences in the way the newsletters were connecting to people's family and, and social lives uh, on the two sides. And so we think there's a relationship there. And that suggests that how, um, how particular unions handle the building of community uh, as work changes and work locations and industries change can have a big uh, set of maybe not so clearly understood effects on their community and political clout. And the other thing that we noticed is that the steel workers like the auto workers and other industrial unions in decline are going out and organizing completely different kinds of workplaces. I mean, the, the teaching fellows at Harvard are in the auto worker union. And that helps to maintain membership and dues, but it doesn't necessarily conduce to building the kind of tight identities built around uh, work uh, skills, pride in the particular kind of work you do that uh, traditionally nourish the steel workers. So I, I would say that that just th this offers hypotheses about that people might look into about what makes organizations effective through periods of 
really fundamental uh, changes that go beyond just membership loss that have to do with they're connecting in new ways to the surrounding uh, social world. So one of the most compelling pictures you paint in your book is that of the mutual commitment of union members who, as you say, are engaged in ongoing give and take relationships with one another. Do you believe that this element of union solidarity has been eroded in recent times? And if this is the case, what's been the driving factor in this erosion of solidarity? Well, I mean, I, 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 as I just suggested, I think you have to look at it industry by industry, union by union. I think some unions have been quite creative in finding ways to build in a kind of reinforcing social dimensions uh, uh, beyond uh, simply the, the workday hours. Um, and others have been fortunate that their underlying industries haven't changed that much. Um, but in cases where there is a change over time, for example, the steelworkers' loss of its kind of geographical grounding in uh, mill towns, uh, mill cities, medium cities that were mill cities like Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, then you got to recognize that that's going to, to snap some of the strands that connected people beyond the workplace and look for new ways to build those. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's, uh, it isn't a, a, a message of hopelessness. It's just a message of, of what do you look to to figure out what you may lose beyond just dues and sheer numbers of members and how do you build that in new ways. And I do believe that both the Democratic Party in the United States and many of the unions not just in blue collar industries, but in professional industries where unionization is spreading in the United States to some degree, are aware of these lessons and are getting creative about it. Probably doesn't hurt that, that many industries have got more women in them who pay more attention to these kinds of things. Um, and certainly on the Democratic Party uh, in the United States, which used to just send in a bunch of volunteers and television ads. Uh, couple of months before the election has realized that apart from its strongholds in some big cities and college towns, that's not going to work. You've got to actually be there all the time. And you see in unionized and non-unionized states, you see Democratic Party innovators figuring out ways to weave themselves into the community 24-7, 365 days a year and thereby get uh, messages out. That's happened among uh, black communities in, in, uh, in Georgia. It's happened in conjunction with unions in a state like Nevada, where a lot of Hispanics are unionized. It's happened in Wisconsin, where the union movement has taken many blows and has lost a lot of resources, but more community-based forms of democratic politics are, are being invented. So you've sort of touched on this a little bit already. I'd love to hear some more of your thoughts on this, on, on how the different way of thinking about social organizations and the interaction between unions and the democratic institutions that you've talked about, how does this help us to explain the shift away from the democratic party that we're seeing in these groups? Well, uh, you know, parties uh, in the United States are uh, not as tightly organized or not as clearly membership groups as they are in a lot of other countries, even, even Britain. So uh, scholarship on political parties in political science profession, my profession has tended to, you know, kind of 
fit into that groove and treat parties as aggregates of voters with attitudes, like, you know, individual potatoes in a sack. And it, it hasn't paid very much attention to the networks among them and how those networks change. I do think that's shifting in both the real world and in scholarships on the Democratic side. It shifted a long time ago uh, on the Republican side, where I think Republicans understood the power of the Christian right as being grounded in church networks, um, really maximized that to get a bang for the vote far beyond the share of the population. Um, African-Americans have also historically been, once they gained the right to vote, they, they, they were pretty connected and they had a shared identity and a shared fate, uh, which could boost their turnout, at least in periods where they thought they could make a difference uh, or were threatened. So I, 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 I just think that the lesson of all this is stop thinking about people as isolated bundles of attitudes and actions and start thinking about them as networks. It's always the networks, and networks can actually be grounded in formal organizations or connected to them, but they can also be more informal. And if you want to build political power, you got to get into those networks. Um, I know that some parties now think of that as getting into social media networks, and so they're using that, but that is a fairly thin form of interaction. You also have to find out who people are talking to day to day. Uh, in their family lives, their community lives, their their work lives. Now, yeah, a lot of people sit at home staring at screens, like I'm doing right now, a lot more. But um, they're still human beings; are still social animals, and they are likely to vote along with people they think are people like them, and vote for politicians they think are on their side. I mean, the, the mystery of Donald Trump, for example, has to be solved that way. How did a narcissistic, selfish, you know, cheating real estate showman from Manhattan, I can, I can hardly think of a less kind of grounded American figure than that, although America has always had charlatans, always has, we're, we're good for charlatans in politics. How did he convince a lot of unionized or formerly unionized workers in Western Pennsylvania, not to mention blue collar people all over the United States, that he was on their side? Well, a few things were done. He always signals that he's on their side. He tries to talk in a language they think is telling it like it is. Uh, he tries to identify people they resent. And a lot of of industrial decline in America is about feeling that your community has been overlooked, has been left behind, abandoned by politicians, including the Democratic Party. And they're not wrong about that. They're right about that. And that the party is, the Democratic Party is catering to a bunch of minorities in cities and a bunch of college professors. I mean, I went out and interviewed people and I have to be very careful with my college professor identity. I have to emphasize that I'm a football fan and I come from the Midwest, that I grew up a Methodist, that I've been married for 50 years. I, I have to find a way to signal to people uh, in this world that I'm not contemptuous of their values. And uh, so that's part of it. A politician can just lie to signal that he's on the side of 
of, of these values. Uh, he can identify the resentments, but he can also go there. And for example, in the 2016 election, I mean, I did some research on this myself, just looking at where did Donald Trump go for his big rallies. These are big mega rallies. They're just shows. But he cited them all in medium-sized cities, often in declining industrial areas, places that Hillary Clinton never went, just never went. So people would get the signal that at least he's come here. I think that's part of the answer. Uh, politics is about who we are, who they are, who's on our side, who's on their side. And it is a matter sometimes of actually being there. It certainly helps. But if you're not actually there, you better go there and you better signal uh, that you understand there. And uh, by there, I mean in American politics, particularly geography. Geography matters in American politics. You can win American elections by being in the right geographies with fewer people. And that's, of course, exactly what Donald Trump did. That's exactly what the Republican Party in the United States is trying to do. It's trying to do minority rule from the right geographic districts. So we started talking about Donald Trump already now. In your book, you note that Trump's appeals lie not in his policies, but rather in his aggressive recognition of blue-collar whites and their resentments and their yearning to be respected. And even if most of the people in these groups know that Trump isn't being entirely truthful about these guarantees, or at least they know he's talking about dreams that are not likely to be realized, Trump has still been telling blue-collar people what they wanted to hear. Do you think this appeal will continue in the longer term as part of a broader political alignment, or will this appeal likely fade with time? Well, the jury is out whether Trumpism uh, will survive Trump, but it's certainly a lot broader than Trump. And basically, Donald Trump's style of politics, his brash, insulting style of politics, his divisive us versus them style has taken over the Republican Party almost totally. That's an extremely dangerous thing because in the United States, a lot of people vote for the other party if they're at all disgruntled with the one in office and don't look too closely at what that other party is driven by. Um, so uh, Trumpism is far beyond Trump. We have a lot of imitators now. We have a Republican Party that can't even elect a speaker in the House of Representatives because they're so busy uh, offing each other, uh, you know, trampling each other to get on Fox News. Um, so, um, but I don't know whether it lasts as with as much oomph beyond Trump himself because there's something about Trump's showman style that taps a deep vein in American politics. Uh, you're going back to the 19th century, where somebody who can put on a show is, is very influential. Of course, he's got an entire media sector, multiply headed media sector now behind him. Uh, and he's not quitting. I think it's actually just as strong as it's ever been. And the 2024 election is going to be another round of seeing whether this can take over very powerful state apparatus. Uh, of course, there's an international dimension to this, too. And I think that probably taps into the feeling of many blue collar communities that we shouldn't be sending resources to other countries when we haven't sent them to them. 
Not that Trump is going to do any of these things. Uh, the one set of things he will do that appeals to a certain core, but not all blue collar workers, is to uh, try to block immigrants. That has probably a broader appeal. And that is the one thing he consistently tries to carry through on. So President Joe Biden has made returning good union jobs to America a central part of his recent political messaging, including by taking the unprecedented action of becoming the first sitting president to visit a picket line. Reflecting on the story in your book, are Biden and the Democrats taking the right sorts of actions needed to attract union voters back to the Democratic Party? Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, public opinion has shifted uh, to be more favorable to unions in the United States. Now, a lot of that shift occurs among college-educated people who are also shifting to the Democrats. They're watching all of this, so they approve of something like that in the abstract without necessarily uh, having a personal stake in it. Um, and let's not kid ourselves. I mean, in the next election, a lot of blue-collar workers, unionized or not, are going to vote for Donald Trump. But uh, you know, it really does come down to margins. And if I've spent a lot of time myself studying the state of Pennsylvania, even apart from this book with Lainey Newman, and, um, you know, Hillary Clinton did not visit a lot of the declining industrial regions in Northeast and Western Pennsylvania in 2016. Uh, and she lost massively there. She lost more massively in those counties than Barack Obama had done. Joe Biden has made a point of visiting all those places. He's been to Erie, PA a bunch of times. He's been to Luzerne County. Is he going to win those areas? He did eke out a narrow victory in Erie County. He did not win back Luzerne County. That's not going to happen. That's north, north uh, eastern Pennsylvania. But he did better. His margins improved uh, across most of the formerly heavily unionized counties. And uh, and that's enough when you add it up county by county to lose by less. If you can put that together with a good turnout in in Pittsburgh and the collar counties around Philadelphia. Uh, so he carried Pennsylvania. So did Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, who is doing a pretty good job of, of, of appealing to a broad coalition that stretches from college educated voters to unionized workers. There aren't enough unionized blue-collar workers left to make the kind of difference they made in the 1950s and 60s. And many of them are not going to vote again for the Democrats. They will vote for Trump. But the margins will shift, and they are shifting. And that means that the Democrats, which who have an extremely complex coalitional problem, they have to bridge from college-educated professionals to uh, you know, uh, lower income minorities, uh, they have to include, do better among blue collar, uh, non-urbanites. Uh, it's a balancing act, but to the degree that anybody can do it, I think the Biden, uh, Democrats are doing the best they can at that and will carry the day in 2024 unless a lot of third party candidates lead off a crucial margin of votes in key states. And that could very well happen. U.S. political parties, even the Democrats, are very weak parties. Um, we are a nation of narcissists at this point. Donald Trump is absolutely 
in the lead in a cultural tendency that is much broader than him. And everybody thinks they should be president now. Cornell West, Larry Hogan, uh, they can make the difference. They can reelect Donald Trump with a minority of fervent voters. And he has that minority. He's not going to lose them, even if he's in a prison cell. So there's one final question before we finish. Earlier in this conversation, you mentioned how many of the traditional roles that unions took up in community life have been replaced by institutions like, say, gun clubs and megachurches. Do you think it's possible for us to take back what their traditional role was? And if so, what kinds of policies would be necessary for this to happen? Well, unions have to make sure that they have social events, that they're involved in the social lives of of workers, probably by building around families, because, of course, men and women's relationships to one another and child raising have changed. So, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting when you go through the old newsletters, you can see that uh, the the steelworkers had uh, hunting clubs. They were they knew that everybody was carrying a gun around and going hunting in western Pennsylvania. Um, so they uh, they catered to that. And they still do. They have clubs that are an attempt to draw people away from the NRA sponsored clubs. Um, but I think rather than just countering uh, whatever, uh, niches, uh, other uh, more right-wing connected uh, organizations have in social and recreational life. Uh, unions, uh, unions can and and are looking for new ways to connect to families, connect to associations that are doing things in the community, uh, and are defining community in non-local ways if they have to. I don't have enough information to know exactly how far these ideas have gone in different internationals. And of course, uh, the decline of unionization in uh, private sector blue collar jobs is unrelenting. It has not stopped. A lot of blue collar union power is now in the healthcare industry. So it's not in heavy industry. And uh, I do know that those unions, the the service workers, for example, are very aware that they need to build solidarity uh, beyond the workplace. And I'm pretty sure that the auto workers in Michigan who are, you know, mounting a a tactically very well-designed drive at this point um, have built broader solidarities as well. Our book doesn't purport to be either a detailed critique of what unions are doing now or um, based on full evidence about what they're doing now. It's about what changed and the insights that we can get from that. Uh, So we hope that it'll be uh, used in that spirit by union organizers now. Data Scotchpole is Victor S. Thomas Professor of Government and Sociology at Harvard University. And that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Professor Theda Scotchpole for joining us in this episode. For more information about the Phelan U.S. Center, you can go to our website at lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states. And you can also keep an eye on our social media feeds for details about our work. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at LSE underscore U.S. And on Facebook, we're LSE United States. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. 
Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can send us an email with your feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks so much for listening.